Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to check out our book, Blazing New Homeschool Trails, Educating and Launching Teens with Developmental Disabilities by Natalie Vecchione and Cindy LaJoy, available on Amazon. Today, we'll be welcoming back Dr. Christy Petranco. Dr. Christy Petranco is a clinical psychologist and researcher who has been conducting research with individuals with FASD since 2003. She completed her graduate training with Edward Riley and Sarah Matson in San Diego, California in 2009. She is currently a faculty member at the Mount Hope Family Center in the University of Rochester. Dr. Petranko's research focuses on developing and evaluating interventions for people with FASD, including the use of mobile health technology to increase access to care. Dr. Petranko has experienced training teams of providers, both regionally and internationally, in the FASD diagnosis. She also runs a multidisciplinary FASD clinic, providing a diagnostic intervention and family support services in Rochester, New York. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. I am so happy to welcome back a very familiar face, someone who I appreciate so much in the FASD community. She is just doing so much for families and individuals living with FASD, and she's a pleasure to have on our show. Um, I'm welcoming back Dr. Christy Petranko. Christy, well, welcome back to FASD Hope. Thank you so much, Natalie. It's a pleasure to be here again. We are going to be talking about a very exciting new app. Dr. Petrenko is overseeing. And I participated in a webinar earlier today, learning about more about this app. I know about this app, but the reason why we wanted to have this episode, the reason why I wanted to have Dr. Petrenko back on uh, today's episode, there is a need for families to participate in this app. And this app has just so many things to offer for families of young children that have an FASD. So uh, with that in mind, Christy, can you give us a little bit of the backstory behind the Families Moving Forward app and its history? Sure, I'd be happy to. We've actually been working on this app now for almost five years. And if you think about the time it took us to write the grant to get the funding, I mean, we're talking like six and a half years that we've been thinking about it. And it's just so exciting to be at this point where we are in our final testing stage of this app. Um, and I'm, I'm just excited to tell people about it. You know, when you spend so long on something, you like to just see your little baby go out in the world, you know? So um, we really came up with this idea for the app because there are so many challenges for kids and families getting services in the community. Um, and so, you know, we have this program called the Families Moving Forward program that was developed by a dear colleague and friend of mine, Heather Carmichael Olson at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Research Institute. 
And we've been doing this Families Moving Forward program here in Rochester since about 2013. It's a therapist-led program. And it's really wonderful and based on, you know, key principles for FASD-informed care. And research has shown that it's really helpful for families. But not that many families can, can utilize the program. And there are not enough therapists around the country who know how to do it. There's actually relatively few for the number of people that need it. So we were trying to find a way to increase access to care. And, you know, someone approached me about the idea of doing an app. And at first I was like, an app, how is that gonna help, right? And the more I thought about it, I realized that it could actually have an important role for many families. A lot of what you do and kind of search online when you first even think that might be FASD or get a diagnosis, it's hard, it's overwhelming to know what information is most helpful, what's accurate, you know, you know, and finding good information. And so we have taken the Families Moving Forward program and made this derivative product. So we've taken a lot of the content and methods and principles and turned it into an app form, which was a really interesting but complex process. And and we've done a lot of work since then. I'm sure you have a lot of questions about that. And I'm happy to talk more about the fun that has been this project. I do. I do. And first, I have to say I'm a little biased because my husband makes mobile apps for a living. So I I, <laughs> I love when, when we first started talking about this and you first started sharing this wonderful app with me, I thought, of course, having an app for people in the FASD community, that makes perfect sense because it's a great way to streamline, like you said, streamline this wonderful program into accessibility. And I know you mentioned in the webinar earlier today that the app and uh, the project launched shortly before COVID. How did that impact it? Well, so one part of the project uh, launched right during COVID, which, oh my goodness, <laughs> COVID <laughs> has not been friendly to anyone. No. So the part of the project that launched around COVID was um, what we called our feasibility trial. So what it did is we'd already tested some like early prototypes of the app. And then right around March of 2020, we were about to try sort of beta test 2.0, basically, like the next stage where we've made some refinements, we've taken people's input, and we wanted to get it out to a larger group of people, make sure the technology was working on a wide range of devices and operating systems, and getting people's input. But we also were testing sort of some of the research infrastructure to see, could we recruit people? Did our sign-up process worked? Could we do some of the surveys that would be important for our last stage to see, you know, did they work? Did people, did we see change? Like, and, and some of those things. Well, COVID then happened. About a week after we launched the app and sent it to families um, in that trial. And, you know, you actually, an app seems pretty well suited during COVID, right? Yeah, because yeah. you are remote. <laughs> you mm -hmm. don't have to worry about being there with people. But thinking about all the families and everything they were trying to juggle in that time. Um, yeah. In one of our surveys that we asked people how COVID impacted their ability to use the app, a lot of people said they were able to use it a lot less than they thought they would had COVID not happened. Because, you know, we were remote schooling yes. on children. We yeah. were like dealing Working with from all home. of the stress yeah. and the overload. And so 
um, that definitely played a role in, in that part of the study. But um, our main goal at that point was not to necessarily see if the app worked in terms of making change for people. So we were able to still really gather some of the things that we were interested in. Some families were able to use it and give us feedback about their experiences. Um, we were able to see that our infrastructure was working, but also found some ways to make it better and more efficient um, and get better ourselves at conducting the research. Um, and so it had a lot of benefits, but it also slowed us down quite a bit, COVID did, because my engineering collaborator um, essentially built from scratch the, um, the symptom tracking uh, app, the, what we call our Dr. Chatbot to talk systems, um, check symptoms across our entire university community. Um, he was doing alarms on ventilator. I mean, he was got pulled away in so many very valuable and important ways. So it slowed us down a little bit and, you know, all the infrastructure of the university. But, um, but we, just like we always do in the FASD field, we just kept persisting and keep moving along. Forward. Keep it moving forward. That's, That's right. Enough. You know, so that's right. So we're here now. And now last time you, you were on FASD Hope in early 2021, I believe it was a little more than a year ago. It was January, 2021. At that point, where were you in the app before we talk about where you are now? Yeah, we were, we were still trugging along in that feasibility trial. We okay. ended up doing, um, we had our iOS or so Apple devices that one went out first right around March 2020 and we were anticipating our Android trial would go out a couple months later but that ended up being more like January February of 2021 given all of the things that we were all trying to yeah. deal with um, with COVID but yeah and then that wrapped up this past year and and now we're on to the last final step which is so exciting. And again, uh, one of the many reasons why I wanted to have you come back today, because this is really like the last step before, okay, here, here's a launch and we need listeners. If you are listening and if you're not involved in this app, and if you meet the criteria, we need you. So I'm going to get to that in a few minutes, but before we start talking about how you can learn more and participate in this in this app study. One thing that you mentioned, Christy, that really struck a chord with me in the webinar was that you talked about kind of like these concepts of having FASD informed care. And that's something that as parents and caregivers, it's so hard to find people, first of all, who are educated about FASD, but then secondly, understand kind of the nuances involved since FASD has so many complexities in the diagnosis. And you brought up five, I guess, key points that we should keep in mind when we're talking about FASD-informed care. And I know this is kind of part of the app. So I wanted to know if you could share that with our listeners. Yeah. At first, I really want to acknowledge where some of these key principles of FASD-informed care come from, because they're not necessarily ideas that I came up with on my own. Um, I definitely am just representing the wonderful clinical wisdom of many people, including um, inspirational leaders in our field, like Diane Malvin, um, Heather Carmichael Olson, who developed the Families Moving Forward program, really, um, you know, in terms of clinical wisdom and the research and really kind of pulling these together. So these points were organized by Heather, but 
um, are coming from many sources as well. And so some of these key pieces of FASD informed care, when we think about intervening with families, really kind of come down to some key principles. The first is reframing. And I imagine most of your listeners are pretty familiar with what this term is, but I'll go ahead and define it again, just to, you know, you never know if you got someone new or, you know, really still building these skills. So reframing for, for those of you who might be newer listeners or still learning about this concept is this process of sort of putting on almost like a new pair of glasses. It's sort of seeing behavior from a new lens. So behavior can be seen in FASD often as interpreted as willful or purposeful, but we know many people with FASD have some underlying neurodevelopmental disabilities or their symptoms of FASD. And so by learning to see these underlying disabilities or symptoms um, and how they relate to the behavior, it can really give you new insights and, and, and more compassion for what the person with FASD is going through. So kind of having this new pair of glasses on to look at behavior in a new way, in a different way, is really central, I think, to, to moving forward with FASD. Um, we've done a lot of research on reframing too, and um, there's really shown to be a lot of benefits for both the person with FASD and understanding themselves and for parents. Um, and it leads to people feeling more effective, more like feeling better about themselves. So um, I really see having a diagnosed FASD, like if you can reframe that really offers a lot of advantages for having that. So that's the first piece. The next one that naturally leads from reframing is accommodation. And that's doing things differently that really lead from this new reframed way of thinking. So for example, if a child, you know, you might see a behavior that we might typically think of as like non-compliance or, you know, being oppositional, not doing what we're asking them to do. But with these new glasses, we might think, oh, this is actually a problem with like working memory or doing multiple step instructions, like sequencing these really complex executive functions. Well, knowing that is the reframed interpretation gives us new solutions. So these accommodations of like, we're just gonna do one instruction at a time and keep it simple. Like that's a great approach. And so that's a key, a key um, aspect of FASD informed care. Those are kind of two of the biggest foundational pieces. The next piece is what we call in, um, in sort of FMF language is called brainstorming. And this is sort of a like parent provider friendly way of a process that we call positive behavior support. And positive behavior support or brainstorming is like strategic planning. And so what you do is you try to figure out, you do in a what's called a functional behavior assessment and you're looking for what does this behavior or need what is this behavior fulfilling? Like what's the need or purpose of it? We call that the function. And then what we try to do, especially for people with FASD or their disabilities, is we think about what accommodations or supports can we put in place to head off the problem behavior, but creating an alternate or better way behavior that gets that same need met. Because if you don't meet the need, problem's still gonna come. <laughs> so it's giving this 
other better way, maybe not the ideal best way, but like a workable way, right? And so a lot of it's the things on the front end versus, okay, let's do more sticker charts because that's not always that helpful. So that's the next piece. And we teach that in FMF or FMF Connect um, as well. And we see that as an important way. Reframing and accommodations can get you pretty far, but sometimes with the more complex, most challenging behavior, you need this like bigger piece, this like brainstorming way. Then the next step of FASD informed care is what we call, or is building skills. I think for a long time, people had this idea that people with FASD can't learn new skills. Um, I'm not sure where that came from um, because people with FASD can learn and do and have many wonderful skills and talents. Um, they might learn them differently. They might take longer, may need more concrete experiential ways of learning additional supports, but they can learn things. Um, and so skills like um, working on self-regulation. I mean, that's a skill I think we all benefit from learning. Um, and that's a skill, especially given some of the impacts of prenatal exposure, people with FASD maybe need extra practice with that, many folks. Things like math skills or social skills, safety things. Um, those are all examples of what um, is useful um, for people with FASD and sort of thinking about FASD care. And the last one that I'll mention now is hope, which I know is very dear to many people on this podcast. And I just really appreciate Natalie and, and trying to spread the hope and hold the hope because we know that a lot of families, it's when you're trying to figure out this new way of parenting or dealing with people telling you're doing it wrong or dealing with systems barriers and trying to just get through the day, uh, it can be hard to hold on to that hope. And so we often need other people to kind of help bring us along, hold that hope when it's too hard for us. We need reminders or ways to do that. Um, and so that specialized network of support is often key to doing that. So those are, it's probably a longer answer than you needed, but no, I, <laughs> I love excited it about this topic. So I love it. And I wrote all of those down so that our listeners can have a visual of that. I like to say that on this journey, especially as a parent or caregiver or an individual with an FASD, oftentimes we need other people to hold our hope for us. Sometimes the situation can seem so dire or can be so critical that you honestly just, you're just trying to survive. You're just trying to keep your head above water. So I love that included in this, I guess, this gold standard of FASD informed care is hope because, you know, not only to instill it in others and to, to let others know, you know, especially those I find for me, the, the people who give me the most hope. And I know you and I, like on social media, we've been kind of chatting about this, like CJ Lucky and, you know, Kat Griffin and the FASD changemakers, they are like hope booster shots for me. I just, I listen to them. And as a parent of a young adult with an FASD, I think, wow, they really give me hope as, as a mom. So I love that that hope is incorporated into, into that. So thank you for sharing that. And I'll put a little shout out for the FASG changemakers too, because they are amazing people that I just, I actually have the joy of working with them on our adult app that one day I'll tell you more about that too. <laughs> um, and so I get to see them every, like every month or so, and they're just such fun, interesting people. And I just make me laugh. They have some great sense of humor too. 
I, I had them on and they were just, they were just amazing. I, I was just so happy. And, and um, yeah, that's so cool that you get to see them on a regular basis. Christy, let's talk now about, we're going from one extreme to the other. We're going from hope and, and positive to what many of us have encountered. We encountered this for many years. What are barriers to FASD informed care? And we're having this conversation because this leads up to the app and what Christy is going to be emphasizing in the app. But before we go on to the good stuff, let's talk about those barriers that that we encounter both kind of on a, a larger level, systemically, socially, and then on a personal level, because those really, we hear so much about people who didn't get a diagnosis, you know, or, or an appropriate diagnosis for their loved one for months, years, in our case, decade, you know, it was over a decade. Let's talk about those barriers. Yeah, there are a lot of barriers. Um, and it, I spent, you know, the earlier couple of years in when I first moved to Rochester, really digging in and trying to understand that, um, the, especially the systems level barriers impacting families and did a couple of studies related to that. And I was particularly interested in the lived experiences of families and providers and, um, and got my hands dirty learning qualitative methods, which has just added so much richness to um, my research and, and training others. Um, but, you know, the, our study, I think, and is similar to what other studies have shown to um, that kind of pervasive lack of knowledge about FASD underlies a lot of them. And, and the more and more I continue in this field, I think stigma probably underlies that further too. Um, but it, you know, it comes down to delayed diagnosis. We know that as many as 80 to 90% of people don't get diagnosed at all um, with an FASD and those like 10 or 20 that do um, it's often a very complex route to get there. Um, it's rarely a like, oh, went in early childhood, they thought about FASD, they gave a diagnosis, and I got all the services and supports I needed. <laughs> you know, it's more often, oh, you know, I come in with a binder of all the reports and evals, you know, and it's a teenager, and we just, you know, the first time someone's thought about prenatal alcohol exposure playing a role, even though we know about it. So that's a, it's a common challenge. Um, there are a lot of states that don't have clinics or maybe have one clinic that does like 20 evals a year, you know, and, you know, in upstate New York, we have one primary clinic in Rochester that does FASD diagnosis. And we started at one a month and now we're at 220 a year, but we're, you know, it's terrible. Like you, we have families drive four or five hours or more to come, um, you know, our wait list is longer than we'd like it to be right now. And um, we're trying to find creative ways to expand capacity, but it's hard. Um, and you've got one provider in New York City. Like that's not what we need. And, and many other states are in the same situation. You know, once you get a diagnosis, you're like, all oh, right, answer time, time to get the services, right? And I don't know. I can see Natalie shaking yeah, her head. I'm, I'm I know this is like, an audio totally, yeah. podcast. But. I am shaking my head. No, because, and, and that's a topic that comes up so much on this podcast is, okay, you get the diagnosis, you know, like, you know, we talked to Dr. Douglas Waite, who again, here's the diagnosis. Now the parents, the caregivers, the loved ones, there's really no like clinical pathway of what to do, yeah. you know, or if it is, it's kind of pieced together rather than, 
hey, here, here's something that we know is evidence-based that works and, and whatnot. So yeah, let's talk about and that. And Doug's, Doug's our provider in the city. And yes. <laughs> so it's yes. him and I. It's exactly. And, and my team in Rochester. So that's, that's where we're living. And we're a big state. Um, yep. So, you know, there's not, you know, systems of care like developmental disability systems, mental health. I mean, nobody's got a box for FASD. You know, some states have made been able to get, you know, some changes made where they'll recognize the diagnosis of FASD. And we're trying our best in New York to do that, too. Um, but that makes it hard to access services. You know, FASD goes across pretty much any system of care. You see an increased rate in FASD and systems who are not, who don't have the knowledge and skills to, to best support people with FASD. And, and oftentimes it's not a you know, it's not providers, you know, not wanting to learn about it. It's that it's systemically not a part of provider education, you know, and so they don't know, you know, they don't feel skilled. They are struggling. You get some who are, when presented with the information, become champions and want to learn more and try their best, but they're learning right there with you. And oftentimes the parents know more because they've, they're invested. They're doing everything they can protect those, put those protective actions in place. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's not a lot of availability. Um, I think general providers, like in your mental health system, they don't know they have as many cases of FASD that they do. They don't see the need or like overall advantage to investing a lot of time and money and training in new programs for the number of people that they think that have FASD when it's probably a much broader range. And so, you know, and then there's also stigma, like, I don't want to ask because I don't know what to do. And then I also, it's stigmatizing. And so then you get all of that. Mm -hmm. um, for those people who are able to get services in place in some form, and often this is in the school system um, where this data came from, uh, where people tended to talk about getting services. Um, they're not always implemented as well as we would like. Um, they're not always informed by FASD. Um, and then there's the problem maintaining services because, you know, once we start getting the accommodations, they're successful. It's like, oh, great. You're all set. Yeah. We can pull those out. We, we can use that for somebody else. Right. Yeah. And that's, but that's the thing you need to really maintain that success. And, you know, I see so many kids in our state who have, you know, they get special ed as a preschooler from early intervention. That's, you know, really helpful. And they're doing well in preschool with all that structure. And then it's like, oh, you really benefited. I think you're ready for kindergarten without an IEP. Let's go ahead and start the year. They declassify them. And then you spend your kindergarten year flailing mm -hmm. and trying to get supports. And then it's like, why couldn't we just kept that? And then if we didn't need it, eventually tailor that back a little. But so yeah, we could probably go on for hours just about this. But no, we and I'm talk just about the more hopeful I'm things, just, but. I'm just nodding my head in agreement because that's what happened to us. You know, he, he, long before our son had a, an FASD diagnosis, he had sensory processing diagnosis and all the other diagnoses. And like you said, he qualified for early intervention for a year and then he did great and hey, no more. And, you know, as a parent, and, and I'm sure you, you're frustrated with this as well, you know, as a clinician it's like, okay, can we be proactive and, and thinking they're doing great? Let's keep it going rather than, oh, they're doing great. Okay. Now we can stop. You know, it's, it's so frustrating. 
And that was one of the themes that came out in some of that early work I was doing when I first came to Rochester is like, what is an ideal intervention in this like comprehensive, individualized, um, proactive, yeah. coordinated were some of the big themes that came out in that research. And that has really kind of, I've taken through into designing these various interventions and setting. And I think it also speaks like this body of research that I'm telling you about, um, you know, we wouldn't know this without families being willing to share their lived experiences. And like, I didn't just come up with this stuff. Like this is me just hearing and partnering with families and collecting enough stories and hearing and putting it into, you know, I make a nice little figure, write a paper, but it's then disseminating that into the scientific and clinical communities and policy is how we get these things changed and attention. I mean, you know, I think kind of gathering these voices together and then amplifying them in social media and sharing things, I think yes. makes such a world of difference is when we can kind of all work together. Yes. And we have to do a quick plug for the FASD Respect Act, which you and I are both, you know, HR 4151 S2238 and, and we'll have a legislative update coming up really soon. But this all plays into that. These things that we're talking about are addressed and it's more, it's so much, it just totally reinforces why we need this act passed because it would really start to make a dent in the whole systemic lack of knowledge, the, the, you know, this stigma, addressing the stigma, addressing the research prevention interventions. And, and what I know personally, as a parent of a young adult, getting those supports to continue throughout the life development, not just all these wonderful supports in the beginning, but having those supports and services and systems continue. So now my question is, and I should know this because again, I'm, I'm married to a guy who makes apps for a living. Um, now we have all this discussion. How is this awesome app going to address things like the barriers and, and things that we're talking about? Because it really is an innovative way to think about, hey, we're going to work together with families, but in a very tech savvy, friendly way. Let's just talk about it because I think it's a really exciting app. Well, and um, in our very first phase of developing the app, before we actually even had it on a phone. We did focus groups across five cities. We did seven different rounds of focus groups and we met with families and we asked them what they thought about our initial concept of design. And, and this was such a key part of app development, at least in the way that we develop apps in that really getting input from people early on to make sure you're on the right track. And the thing that families said were some of the biggest draws or positives about um, the potential of having an app, and remember, it wasn't even an app yet, was accessibility. Um, that was the first one. And that being both it being accessible to more people because you don't have the geographic limitations, you don't have to schedule an appointment with a therapist, you know, all those things. Um, but also, you can access it in your hand or your pocket whenever you want. If you're someone, like a kids are in bed, I'm on, I'm on a, you know, midnight chatting with people, that's when you do it. Or I'm in the car waiting for the next appointment with this kid while I go with this kid and this basketball game, like, you know, living the life. Um, <laughs> that's a one big thing that people said that was, would why an app would be so helpful. 
The next one is that the app can kind of organize and guide all the information. So our app has all the kind of key FASD principles that you know are in the FMF program, the therapist-led version, um, are organized in a sequential way in the app. And so you kind of build that foundational knowledge as you go um, and kind of digestible pieces that kind of helps you through. And rather than just going online and trying to find what you need, it's, it's there in the sequence. The next part is that it lets you connect with other people. So in the FMF Connect app, which is a bit different than the standard FMF program where like a therapist works with you, in this app, there is a section called the Family Forum that lets you connect with other people in real time. And so you can post, you can comment. Um, you know, these posts can be like, oh, I'm, I, my kid has this behavior and I'm trying to refrain, but I'm like struggling here. I need some guidance. Um, it could, or it could just be like, oh my gosh, I had the worst day ever. And I need to just like yell into the void and have other people say, I'm there with you or I get it, <laughs> you know, and, and just also sharing strengths and stories. Um, so that was the third one. And then the last, the kind of fourth major theme here was being able to share things with others. So our library portion of the app lets families kind of dig deeper into areas of interest. Like there's some um, fact sheets on sensory processing or tips on calming. There's a fact sheet on like imaging and FASD. And so whatever you're kind of into, they're organizing categories. Um, you can look at those fact sheets and you can also email them yourself to share with other people. You know, there's one, there's a couple things for teachers. You can print those out and give it to your child's teacher. You can't post them in the interweb so that, you know, cause they're program material, but at the same time, you can do anything that would help with your child and um, sort of with others. So those are some of the big themes that before it was even an app, people really were excited about. I'm excited about that. Now I know there's an age group when we're going to talk in a few seconds about how you can participate in this final stage of the app. I know I'm looking forward to when it starts for adults and, you know, and young adults, because I just see this as such a valuable tool for so many families. And we know, I know you've heard this from so many families and I've heard this from so many guests and, and just being on this road, this FASD journey whether you're a self-advocate, parent advocate, professional advocate, it's a very lonely journey. And so having that sense of community in an app, as well as education, as well as the accessibility and the organization, it, I am just so excited about this. I think this is such a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for a lot of families to start moving forward and start learning more about how they can be just the best support for their kids and, and to talk about these really critical components in FASD informed care that you're talking about. So in the webinar, you showed this wonderful graphic about, um, you know, the stages of development. So now I know that you're at that final stage, that final um, iOS stage. I know then after that will be the Android stage. How can listeners, how can people participate? I want to give you this platform now because I know you need participants and I know there are listeners out there who could really benefit from this app. So let's talk about that part now. 
So we're in this final stage called a randomized control trial. Now, a randomized control trial is this type of study that is, is sort of like the gold standard um, of, or sort of like the best possible way of testing a program to make sure that it works and it benefits people. All of our work up to this point has been really trying to make the app the best it can be and for the user's experience to make sure it works technologically and that our study is like as best prepared as we can be to be successful. But we're at the stage now where we wanna show that the app actually leads to change for families in positive ways. We're looking to change things, um, improving child behavior, improving how parents feel about themselves as parents, because sometimes it doesn't feel very good, um, how connected people are, how much their needs are being met, how much they know about FASD. We know that there's always room to grow there. Um, and so those are the kind of things we're hoping the app will help with. And we've done our best to set it up that it can help with that. But we need families to help us show that it does. Because this kind of research trial is really important to policymakers, um, organizations. It, it'll help influence them to be able to help support families in using this, telling people about it, you know, and so on. So this kind of study is really important for that. We typically need pretty large numbers though to do these kind of studies and to show, and for people to believe that it actually works. So we're talking like we need like 150 people or something like that. Um, and what this study does, it's called a randomized control trial because we have to assign people the different groups. And this study has three groups. So we have one group that gets the app right away. There's a second group that gets the app right away, but they also get this new thing that we're testing that's called coaching. And so we have a coach that is in the app that texts you and um, kind of helps you set goals for using the app and might kind of point you to direction. They're not like a therapist, but they're, they're trying to like help you use the app the best that you can. And then there's a third group, which is our waitlist group. Now the waitlist group gets the app, but at the end of the three month study, and the reason why we have to have this group is because it helps us see that the change is more related to the app, not other things. Like, for example, during our feasibility trial when COVID happened, we just had one group for that study. That was all we needed. But we didn't know if some of the behavior changes or the parenting changes were related to the app or COVID. So having this comparison group helps us really know that. And so everyone has an equal chance depending on to see which group they get assigned. I have no role in that, which is important because I would give like, <laughs> I would be terrible. I guess I want everyone to have everything right now, you know, but, um, but being in this study can really help make a difference. Um, not only for people trying the app out and learning and, you know, furthering their own goals for their family, but it will help the people coming behind us. Um, and hopefully they will be able to access the app, you know, maybe even when their child is younger or earlier on in the process. And I think it could make a big difference. So that's sort of the reason for the study. To be in the study or to see, learn more about it, um, there are two different websites you could go to. So the first one um, is hosted at the University of Rochester. And it is www. 
www.fasd.urmc.edu. And I know Natalie will put these all in the kind of show notes for you all. Um, and on that website, there is some information about the study. And there's also a link that goes into our, um, our kind of online signup. Um, and when you do the online signup, um, what you do is there is a, a long consent form. Um, all research, there has to be a, a, a form that explains all of the risks and benefits of participating so you can make an informed choice. We have both a video format and a text format, depending on how you like to receive your information. So you go through that. There's some screening questions to make sure you meet study criteria. Um, and then there's a few other um, brief surveys that kind of ask about your family and what you know about prenatal exposure and if there's been a diagnosis. That all helps us figure out if you are eligible for our study. In research, we have to have very specific criteria. Um, and if we do not follow that criteria, it can be a major um, problem. So we gotta be really precise. So not everybody is gonna be able to qualify, but many people do. After that stage, we look through and see um, if people meet the eligibility criteria. And if they do, then they receive the next set of surveys. Families earn $40 for completing the first set of surveys. They're online, you can do them at any time. Um, they do take some time, but um, we really value people's time and efforts. And um, I think it's gonna make a big difference um, for our community and, and showing that these that things can be helpful for families. We got a short set of surveys you get $20 for, and then three months later, there's a longer set of surveys that is $40. So that's sort of the structure of the study. Now I'm sure you're wondering, okay, like who can do this study? <laughs> um, so the study is currently limited to being in the United States. Um, I know there's a lot of international interest for the app too, and I've talked with folks in some different countries um, across the world who also are really interested um, the reason for it being only in the U.S. is that some of the parts of the app talk about different systems of care or the school system, and we all know that different laws and ways of systems differ from countries. So it's, it really makes the most sense for people in the U.S. right now. The next part is that you need to be a parent or a caregiver of a child with FASD or prenatal exposure. A diagnosis is not necessarily required because we know that's a huge barrier in many places where you don't have a provider. However, we do need to know that there is prenatal exposure um, to be able to make sure that, you know, it makes sense to be in this particular study. Um, if you have a diagnosis but don't have confirmation, that's, that is okay too. Um, now, I know that a lot of people suspect prenatal exposure but aren't able to document it. Um, you wouldn't be able to be in this specific study, but hopefully very soon later this summer or fall when the app is in the app store and you can go and download it, then that would be appropriate for you. Um, so also the child needs to be between the ages of three and 12. The child does not participate in the study, it's just parents, um, but the app, the content that we're teaching parents is really most appropriate for that child, the early preschool, uh, school age period. Um, we know that there are a lot of adolescents and adults out there who have, you know, are really eager for tools and, and we are not forgetting you. We are 
definitely going in that direction as well to really reach the full lifespan. But for this specific app, the parents need to be have a child between three and 12. And then the other piece is um, this study right now is focusing on iOS devices. So that is an iPhone or an iPad. Um, it works on iPad too. Um, we have had an Android device that we were testing in earlier trials. Android's just a little trickier with the different devices. And we just didn't feel like it was performing as well as our iOS app. And we, you know, we have a small team, especially with COVID impacts on our programmers. Um, so we really put all of our efforts into making the iOS version as strong as we could for this initial test. We do have plans to move into um, an Android and cross-platform versions as we move forward in the future, but we wanted to show first that it worked in the best possible way. So that was probably a very long description for you, but no, no. And, and it's necessary for our listeners to know. So we will be listing all of those requirements so that you can, if you meet all those requirements, you can say, Hey, I want to participate in this valuable study. And not only learn and be a part of this, this wonderful app and community, but then Christy said, help those behind you, you know, who are coming up behind you and who could really benefit from this app. And I will celebrate when this app is in the app store. Oh my goodness. This will be such an amazing resource tool for parents. So I will include all of that information and how long do people have to sign up to be in the study, Christy? That is a great question. We are eager to have folks sign up as soon as they can. Um, The main reason for that is um, the grant that's currently funding this app um, is supposed to end at the end of May. Um, And so if you kind of think the study takes three months, you know, we're looking in like the prime time right Mm -hmm. now to enroll for us to finish by the end of the study. You know, I think we may be able to, um, you know, scrounge up the next extra funds to prolong the study a little longer if we need to. Um, But it would really help things out if families are interested that they go log in, sign up, express their interest. Um, and we'll get that going. Um, we move pretty quickly once people sign up, we review and we try to get back to folks even up in a day or two and kind of keep that process moving. So this is a call to action for you listeners. If, if you're not eligible, but you have a friend or you know someone who is eligible, please forward them the information that we'll be sharing in today's program notes as well as the information that we'll be sharing on our social media. And I'll be tagging families moving forward. Dr. Petrenko, I'll be tagging her and Mount Hope and just all those wonderful social media accounts. I'll be tagging them in our posts so that you can find a way to to sign up for this, this wonderful and much needed resource tool. And I am just so thankful. If you are interested, we are happy to send you flyers and brochures, both print or electronic. I mean, any way we get the word out, we are happy to connect with you and please share it in all your social media. Um, We're just, we want to make sure that everyone who might be interested has the opportunity to know about it. And then obviously everyone's going to kind of make their own choices for what they need in their life right now. We, We get that folks are busy and have a lot on their plates. I am so thankful that you are doing this wonderful, innovative, and resourceful app. So, you know, Christy, that we like to end on hope. And I see a lot of hope in this app. I think this app 
it gives me hope. It would have been, oh my goodness, thinking about, you know, 15 years ago, I would have loved to have an app like this. What about this app and this study gives you hope for those in the FASD community? I think that probably the thing that gives me the most hope is just the potential for an app to reach so many people. It is just such, so hard and so heartbreaking to hear from folks who call up or email who are looking for something and just not having that many things to send them to. And so being able to have, you know, these kinds of tools, um, while they're not going to meet every single need for every person, they, it gives an important foundation. And, you know, as we're moving forward in our research, as you always have to think about, okay, what's the next grant or two grants that you're writing, you know, always like these things take years, right? So, you know, we're continuing to think about building continuums of care. So we're starting with this foundation of, you know, app-based or web-based tools that can reach a lot of people. And we're trying to do this across the lifespan. We're slowly building as we go. And I think as we, as we move, we'll be looking at, you know, for example, with the FMF program, we have standard FMF that's been around for, you know, 15, 20 years that Heather Carmichael Olson created. You should definitely go to that website too and just see the beautiful program. And if you're a provider, I bet you consider learning how to do it. It's amazing. So we have that for like the most intensive needs. And then you have the app for the like lowest kind of, or just foundational needs. And I would love to move and sort of create something in the middle that makes it easier for providers who maybe aren't ready to do the larger program, but maybe need some like provider assisted ways of using the app. Um, and I think we'll move that way um, with adults and teens as well, just to give folks a wide array of resources that work. So we're doing research on them while creating them to make sure they get out there. I love it. I love it. So hope and action, hope and action. That's, that's what this app and that's what this wonderful work is going to be. Please, if you're interested or if you know someone, please check out uh, the links that we have and just really check out this app because I really think it is a great resource tool and could potentially help so many families. Dr. Christy Petranko, I know you'll be back on FASD Hope to give us an update. Thank you so much for just all the work you do. And again, Dr. Christy Petranko, thank you once again for being on FASD Hope. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. I feel like we could go on for hours. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.